Psalm 25 is where you can head in your pew Bible. If you have that in front of you or you open up your own copy of Scripture, open your cell phone. Uh, we do encourage you, especially as we're walking through these psalms each and every week, to keep your Bible open because we're going to be jumping around and, and pointing out different things in these passages. And it's really helpful if you, if you have that Scripture open to follow along and see what we're referring to. Last week, if you weren't here, we jumped into our Lenten series on prayer Understanding that the subject of prayer is, is one in which we can never really learn enough. We can never really explore enough, and we never ever arrive at a mastery of. I was struck by uh, seeing a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's one of the great pastor theologians and, and, and preachers of the 20th century, who said that he, he never wrote extensively on prayer because of an sense of personal inadequacy in the area. And if you knew the kind of guy that Martin Lord Jones was, that's a pretty big statement for him to say, I didn't feel adequate enough to even address this explicitly. And I think many of us can empathize with that feeling of deficiency when it comes to our life of prayer. We know prayer is right and good and something we should be centering our lives upon, and yet we often struggle with prayer in all kinds of different ways. And so as we seek to grow in our prayer life throughout this season of Lent, we are going to be looking at the prayers of really just one guy in the Psalms, and that's King David. And we're going to look at King David again for a number of reasons. Number one, because the Psalms of David have been the prayer book or the school of prayer for God's people for, for centuries, as Gordon Winham and Ben P uh, Peterson or Patterson has said, the Psalms are designed to be prayed. By praying the Psalms, we learn to pray in tune with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you may be wondering, what does it actually mean to pray the Psalms? How do we do that practically? Are we just reading through the text or what are we doing? Well, later on, Today in our service, we're actually going to take part in that together. We're going to walk through a reflection and pray through a psalm as part of our response time so that we can kind of understand one of the ways that we can practically root our prayers in the soil of God's word, what it means to pray the psalm. That's one of the reasons we're studying the psalms of David. A second reason is because, as we said last Sunday, David was an absolute mess of a person. Yes, he had high highs, but the scriptures also testified to the fact that he had very low lows. And yet at the same time, the word says that he was still a man with all his failures and all his follies, a man after God's own heart. And so by studying the prayers of David, we learn what it means to bring our mess, our brokenness, our raw emotions, our joy and our pain, our faith and our doubt, all that we are to God in prayer. David gives us a great model for that. We saw it last Sunday in Psalm 13, that psalm of David that was a lament of David crying out to God with questions and doubt and anguish, and yet at the end of the day, trusting in God beyond what his eyes could see. Yet I will trust in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, overwhelmingly good. And so as we continue this morning looking at these psalms and these prayers of David, we come to another example of the king crying out to God in the midst of suffering and conflict and yet ultimately trusting in the Lord. Let's read Psalm 25 together. 
25th Psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the example we have in your word. We thank you for the fact that when we don't have words to pray, when we struggle to know what to say, we can come and we can root our prayers, we can pour out our hearts through these spirit-inspired words that are filled with the the mess and the struggle and the conflict that we experience in life in all kinds of ways. Father, even as we were reading this passage, there may have been lines, phrases, even just a word that, that attached to the heart of somebody in this room that's saying, that's what I feel right now. That's what I need right now. That's what I want and desire right now. Thank you for the fact that your word is a, li- a living and active and it's working in that kind of way. And as we lean into it together, Father, would you teach us to pray? Would you teach us to to come before you with all that we are and to bear our souls before you? In Jesus' name, amen. 
The 25th Psalm of David is one that holds deep affection in my heart on a personal level. Uh, about 11 years ago, when Rachel and I were serving at a church in, in southeast Houston in League City, things that that congregation had turned upside down in all kinds of different ways, and, and Rachel and I were beginning to wonder or very, see very clear that we were no longer going to be there at least long term. And yet at the same time, it was kind of a crossroads for me personally, and, and I didn't know what we were supposed to do where we were to go, uh, Rachel was looking to me to kind of set that tone, and I was without an answer. It was also during a really rough season in my own life where I kind of felt spiritually distant from God, even though I was serving actively in the church. And so as I struggled to know what to say, Psalm 25 was where I found myself, saying some of the same things that David was like, Lord, make known to me your path. Show me the way I should go because I really don't have a clue. Again, that's one of the great gifts that we have in the Psalms. They can give us the words when we don't have them. Now, the 25th Psalm by itself gives us a picture of the complexity of David's heart. That's the way Charles Spurgeon described it. That In this Psalm, you see the king trusting in God in the midst of conflict, facing enemies. But you also see him weighed down by the reality of his own sin, his own transgression, alongside deep distress, loneliness, despair, trouble, anguish. Here, Spurgeon says, we see the very heart of the man after God's own heart. Now, just like we saw last week in Psalm 13, we don't know much of the background of what's going on biographically in David's life at this point. It's, we don't get the detail, but we do maybe have a hint in verse 7 when David talks about the sins of his youth. Some scholars believe this is David in later years, in later parts of his life, looking back and, and calling out to God in that season of life when his kingdom and really his entire family was kind of tumultuous and, and breaking apart and the kingdom seemed to be maybe just teetering on the edge of, of collapse and David's crying out to God in the midst of that. Again, he's crying out to God because of enemies that he's facing. He's crying out to God because of the sin that's weighed down within him. He's crying out to God in the midst of loneliness and despair. And as you read through the psalm, it kind of feels like it goes all over the place, right? I mean, he's talking to God for a little bit, and then he turns and is kind of preaching the gospel to himself, reminding himself of who God is, his character and his nature. Then he's crying back out to the Lord Again, it seems like it's random, partly due to the fact that it's written in an acrostic pattern where every line is actually the beginning of a Hebrew letter of the alphabet. But it's also because I think we understand that's sometimes what our prayers are like. Like we don't always pray in this perfect linear thematic way. We're crying out to God and going here and then we're going there and then we're all over the place depending on what's going on in our life. And yet as you step back and see the psalm as a whole, we do see a few themes that kind of connect to what David is doing in this prayer. First, he's crying out to God because of his external conflict, the enemies that he's facing. In verse 2, the king prays, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And verse 3, he speaks of those who are wantonly or intentionally treacherous. 
in verse 15, David looks to the Lord to be the one to pluck his feet out of the net, which seems to imply there's traps being set for him, and God's the one who's going to rescue him. In verse 19, the king cries out, Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Now, not just in in Psalm 25, but throughout the prayers of David in the Psalms, you hear him talk about the enemies that he's facing. And on a very practical level, that makes sense, right? He is a military man. He's a national leader. So he's used to facing everything from foreign invaders to political adversaries of all, of all types, all kinds of enemies. Maybe most painfully was that episode when his own son, Absalom, was rebelling against him and threatening to tear the kingdom apart. And yet the fact that so many of the Psalms of David talk about the enemies that he's facing, it's a testimony to what David did when he was facing enemies, whether it was military adversaries, political conspirators, whatever it was, he was going to God in prayer in the face of those enemies. Political, military, or otherwise, he was crying out to God for him to rise up, for him to, to make sure his enemies didn't exult over him, to be the one to defend him against whatever he was facing. Again, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, to you I trust. Let not my enemies exult over me. And so it's important to notice that no matter what kind of enemies he was facing, David took the experience of having that conflict, that external threat to God in prayer. Second thing we notice is that not only was David facing conflict externally, but he was facing it internally, the weight of his own sin and guilt. Especially if this is a prayer that David's offering later in his life, maybe he's come to the point of realizing that the greatest enemy he's facing isn't military or political, it's within himself his own sin, his own brokenness, his need for forgiveness and restoration. In verse 7, David prays, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. In verse 11, the king cries out, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In this particular prayer, it seems that when David is crying out about the enemies that he's facing, uh, the conflict that he's in, his depression, his affliction, his loneliness, that all the, the challenges and struggles that he's facing is, in this case, actually connected in some way to his sin. Listen to what he says in verse 16 through 18. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sin. Now, we mentioned last week the litany of public sins that David was guilty of, everything from adultery and murder to, to excessive violence to selfish passivity as a father. And as you read through the story of David's life, you can see sometimes some direct connections of the turmoil and struggle and conflict that he's experiencing and how it goes back to the sin that he is guilty of. However, I want to make one thing very clear. 
before we lean into that idea. And that is this, that the struggle and the hardship that we experience in life is not always connected to our own personal sin and failure. Suffering is always connected to sin, but not necessarily our own sin. Oftentimes it's connected to sin and the fact that we live in a broken world under the weight of a curse, and we experience the reality of that brokenness in all sorts of ways that bring struggle and hardship and and suffering. But I don't know how many times I've heard, or maybe you've thought it, or maybe you've heard someone else say it, of, of someone say, you know, what sin did I commit? What wrong have I done that this is happening to me? This struggle, this suffering, this hardship. It's the same question that the disciples of Jesus actually asked in John chapter 9 about a man who'd been born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, Lord, which, which one sinned, this guy or his parents, that this man was born blind? blind? Where is the sin connected from? And Jesus' response in chapter 9 verse 3 was, it was not that this man sinned nor his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus goes on to give the man sight. Now, there's an incredible and hard truth in what Jesus just said. But the point is this, that the suffering that we experience in life is not always connected one-to-one to some sin that we've experienced. No, God, in his grace and mercy, can take the brokenness of this world and he can make all kinds of incredible things out of what looks like a really, really bad situation. There's a great line from the Andrew Peterson uh, novels, The Wingfeather Saga, where he talks about how evil makes a pit and the maker digs a well. That is his way that God can use the brokenness of this world to bring about good things. And so I want to make it sure we understand that just because we're experiencing suffering in our life doesn't mean it's directly connected to some sin that we've experienced, that we are guilty of. But sometimes it is. Like, for example, if I were to be found guilty of embezzling thousands of dollars from our church and having an inappropriate relationship with a woman other than my wife, and emotionally and physically abusing my children so that I disqualify myself as the pastor, lose my job, and six months from now, my life is an absolute wreck, and I cry out, God, why is this happening to me? Well, the answer is is simple. My sin. That's why this is happening to me. And there's something maybe of that in David's prayer, especially when you look at verses 16, 17, and 18. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, David's sorrow reminds him of his sin. David's sorrow reminds him of his sin, and his sin drives him to God. That last part is huge. David's sorrow reminds him of his sin, and his sin drives him to God, not away from him. Now, we'll, we'll learn about this more next week when we get into Psalm 51. But here's the takeaway, that no, whether the suffering that we're experiencing in life is connected to our sin or not, if we're experiencing suffering and hardship and pain, as we saw last week in Psalm 13, the response is, go to God. 
for comfort, for strength, for restoration. Even if your suffering and your hardship is no way, shape, or form connected to sin that you've committed. And if your suffering and hardship in life is directly connected to sin that you've committed, guess what? The response is the same. Go to God. Seek the Lord who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and loves to forgive transgressions and sins and renew and restore. The response is the same. And so in this prayer, you see David crying out to God for external conflict. He's facing enemies. He's crying out to God because of internal conflict, the weight of his own sin. And he's also crying out to God for direction of which way to go, how he should live, what he should do at this moment in his life. Verses 4 and 5, David prays, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. In verses 8 and 9, the king preaching the good news to himself is reminding himself of the character and nature of God. He says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Again, in verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? He, him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. So notice how David's prayer for deliverance from his enemies and forgiveness from the overwhelming weight of his sin is deeply connected to David seeking God for change, for for living in a different way, for, for doing something else. It's almost as if David is coming to God and saying, listen, what I'm doing and the way I'm going isn't working. I need you, God, to show me a better way. I need you to lead me in the right path. I need you to give me wisdom and understanding so I know which way to go. Now, I think we could all maybe stop and acknowledge that's not always how we come to God in prayer. We may come to God for prayer asking for help, even asking for forgiveness, but how often are we coming with very little intention or desire to change anything that we're doing? to to honestly put our life, our day-to-day tasks and our habits and our practices before God to say, Lord, change me. Show me a different way. Which way should I go? Or do we come to God asking for help, asking for forgiveness, but with really no expectation that we're going to do anything different tomorrow? We just want you to kind of intervene and make whatever it is in front of me a little bit easier as I continue to do what I want to do the way I want to do it. But David comes before God and says, no, what I'm doing and the way I'm going isn't working. I need you, Lord, to show me a different way. Not just deliver me from my enemies and forgive me of my sins, but show me what to do and where to go. And so in all these things, the overarching principle that we see in this prayer is that in the face of his enemies, overwhelmed by his sin, and in needing direction and wisdom, David seeks the Lord. He goes towards God and not away from him. In the face of his enemies, David seeks the Lord for deliverance. Under the weight of his sin, David seeks the Lord for forgiveness and restoration. When he needs to know what to do and which way to go, he seeks the Lord for wisdom and direction. When he's overwhelmed with loneliness and despair and trouble, he seeks the Lord for strength and for refuge. More than anything, 
This is what it meant for David to be a man after God's own heart. Being a man after God's own heart for David could not mean that he was perfect in his obedience. No, we have too much evidence in Scripture to say otherwise. No, what it meant for David to be a man after God's own heart was that in the midst of his struggles, in the midst of his failures, no matter how many times he blew it, he continued to cling to God. He continued to seek the Lord for whatever he needed, knowing that he was absolutely incapable in himself of finding deliverance, forgiveness, direction, or hope. He sought the Lord even and especially in the midst of his sin. It's almost as if David is instinctively living out the truth of what Jesus says explicitly in the Gospels, that it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. I mean, listen to what he says in verses 8 and 9 in this prayer. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs who? Sinners in the way. The Lord is good, the Lord is upright, the Lord is holy. Who is he leading? He's leading sinners in the way they should go, which implies repentance, implies acknowledging the reality of sin, which is why the verse right after that talks about he leads the humble and what is right, what is good, those who, who acknowledge their sin. But the sinner who comes to him, he will lead them in the way that he should go. But in all this, he is seeking the Lord. Now, this is important to recognize when we talk about prayer because in all those circumstances we just listed, whether we're facing enemies, whether we're dealing with the reality of sin, whether we want direction in what we should do, whether we're dealing with loneliness or affliction, that, that oftentimes our first response, rather than prayer, is to begin to manage the situation, whatever that may look like whether it's conflict, whether it's our sin, whether it's our need for direction, we get to manage it in some way, shape, or form. Okay, if it's a sin, here's the five things that I can do differently in my life tomorrow to begin to, to get on a better path. Or if it's conflict in a relationship, here's seven skills for communication that we can apply. Here's a life hack you can do to organize your life and your space and your time in a more efficient and streamlined way. Here's all the things that I can do to deal with whatever this conflict or whatever this challenge is. The questions we ask are, how can I fix it? What can I do? What actions need to be taken? With little or no thought of the Lord, we just begin to manage the situation. That's if we're the type A kind of person. Maybe if we're the type B, a little more passive, we just kind of put blinders on and go through the motions and pretend there isn't an issue, there isn't conflict, nothing wrong is going on, and we'll just continue to go on as life happens. And yet in this moment, what you see in Psalm 25 is David, who could, by the way, be guilty of both extremes, type A and type B in this moment. He doesn't do either. He doesn't begin to manage things. He brings his concern. He brings his enemies. He brings his sin. He brings his need for direction. He brings his loneliness and despair to God in prayer, seeking his will, his way, his power to face his enemies, to forgive his sins, to give him direction, to restore his soul. In this prayer, David is reminding us that we do not conjure up and create internal peace within ourselves by managing external realities. 
Because that's sometimes how we do things. Like we just think, okay, if I do enough things, if I manage this, if I do this, if I organize that, if I get this where it needs to, then I'm going to have peace internally. And that's not how it works. No, the internal peace that we long for is found not in managing situations, but in seeking God, in knowing God. Said in another way, as long as we see the solutions to our problems and the challenges that we're facing, as long as we see ourselves as being the solution to those problems, that, that we're going to be able to manufacture whatever needs to, to take place within ourselves, as long as we see ourselves as a solution to our problem, prayer will only ever be this optional extra in our life that we should probably get around to more if we can, rather than absolutely essential, like the air that we breathe. But when we begin to see our dependency upon God, that he is the one to whom we have to run for deliverance for enemies and forgiveness of sin and direction in life and dealing with despair and brokenness, when we begin to see that, as Tim Keller says, to pray is to treat God as God, then prayer becomes the center of our life. Or to add on to what Keller says, not only is prayer treating God as God, but to pray is to see ourselves for what we are, absolutely dependent upon God for what we need. In conflict, in the face of sin, in the face of direction, in overwhelming loneliness and despair, our need is found in God. This is actually not this is accessory, but this is, this is central to the gospel message itself. The gospel message that we come and we gather around every Sunday is that we are absolutely incapable of saving ourselves, of, of, of rescuing ourselves, of, of fixing what's most broken inside of us, of cleaning up our own lives out of our own moral effort, our own good works, our own righteousness, that we're absolutely and totally dependent upon God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And by his grace and for his glory, he did. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God the Father made us alive through Christ the Son, who came and died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and was raised to secure our resurrected life and then sent the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to believe the truth and believe this good news and by believing be transformed so that we might reign with God forever one day in a new heavens and new earth. We always talk about the fact that we cannot save ourselves and it's by grace alone. But the way that we pray or rather the way that we don't pray actually betrays what we believe, that we, we can save ourselves. We can fix ourselves. We can do this on our own if we just manage things in life well enough. No, we are absolutely dependent upon the Lord. And David's prayer is an example of that of coming to God in the face of our conflicts, in the face of our sin, when we need direction and we're absolutely overwhelmed 
with life. We seek the Lord. Let's pray together.